Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Vancouver Vineyard Church. If you're new here, I'm, my name is Jace, and today we're launching a new series, new sermon series on sin. <laughs> um, this art it, uh, was done by Sierra Biles, who had her baby, I think, this morning, sometime in the night. So uh, bless you, Sierra, Josiah, baby Elliot. We love you, and thank you for this art. Um, we're just going to jump right in. Um, so here, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, then we'll jump in. God, thank you for each person here for this sacred opportunity to um, think on uh, the truth of how you made the world and what you're calling us to. Transform us into the image of your Son by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, in 1497, going back in time, the Renaissance, um, a young Michelangelo was commissioned by a French cardinal to create, um, this is what the cardinal requested, quote, the most beautiful work of marble in Rome, one that no living artist could better. <laughs> so uh, Michelangelo sculpted from a single block of Carrara marble, the Pieta, um, which he claimed was the most perfect block of marble he had ever worked with. Uh, Pieta means pity or compassion in Italian. And um, in the art world, it's always in reference to this significant and unique form of mourning as someone, it's mostly Mary, but sometimes Nicodemus in some of the paintings or carvings, holds um, the body of um, Jesus after his crucifixion. So uh, Michelangelo's Pieta is generally regarded as one of the most celebrated pieces of Renaissance sculpture. There was... Um, <laughs> and there was no shortage of sculpture during the Renaissance, just so we're clear. Um, experts of Renaissance art, of which I am not, though that sounds awesome, all sort of agree that the balance it strikes between classical beauty on the one hand and then naturalism on the other, which you can see in the complexity of this almost liquid quality to the fabric, it just sort of places this statue in a league of its own. It's a marvel. <laughs> if you've ever tried to just like draw fabric, um, let alone chisel it out of a piece of rock. Um, um, you can imagine that it took, this took the mind and the skill and the patience of a genius. And um, so a couple more things. He carved Mary to be incredibly beautiful and, and young, sort of like this like eternal youthful look, to signify that God was the source of true beauty, and in this moment, she's the closest to God. And her beauty is a symbolic representation of this inner moral beauty, which is infamous of the character of Mary, if you've ever been through the Christmas story. So Michelangelo was proud of this work, and it's actually the only sculpture he ever signed, and he did a lot of sculptures. And so on the whole, it still stands today, as it did back then, as an artistic marvel, an absolute masterpiece, and really beautiful by anyone's standards. It's kind of just undisputed. <laughs> um, okay, so on May 21st, 1972, so not that long ago, on Pentecost Sunday, a Hungarian man named Laszlo Toth entered St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City as part of the Mass, where he jumped over the altar rail, he took a hammer, and he attacked the Pieta, um, all while shouting, I am Jesus Christ, I have risen from the dead. Started hitting the statue. He managed to attack the statue 15 times before he was wrestled to the ground. 
by the public. But his attack severed Mary's arm at the elbow, broke off, removed part of her nose. Um, next slide, you'll be able to see the image. And it damaged um, one of her eyelids. In addition, over a thousand marble fragments were strewn about the floor, and the public started to grab them and take them. <laughs> Ugh. Over time, the statue would be repaired, and you can imagine the meticulous work that that would have been. Um, Toth was declared mad at a psychiatric hospital and later deported, but um, the sad part is this is not the only time that the Pieta was vandalized. So we're beginning a new series today where we'll be talking a lot about sin. And a guiding voice for the teaching team has been a scholar named Cornelius Plantinga who posits this just remarkably helpful definition of sin, which he calls the vandalism of shalom. So I want us to get the image of Michelangelo's masterpiece in our mind. So, something stunning, it's something beautiful, something that beckons the senses and arrests the imagination and takes us through a grand narrative. And it has been brutally and horrifically vandalized. I heard gasps in the room when I described that moment. So in the case of the Pieta, um, the vandalism was the work of a madman's hammer upon marble. But in the Bible, it's this stunning reality of God's shalom, poetically reflected upon ad nauseum by the Hebrew prophets, vandalized with a thousand different hammers of all shapes and sizes, the sum of which we just call sin. So we're going to explore sin in this series, but first, today, we get to, we need, we need to explore that, that, we need to explore that which sin vandalizes, this idea of shalom. And the, f the first basic question is, what does shalom mean? Typically, it's translated with the word peace. So um, its basic meaning can be observed by looking at its verbal form first. Um, in reference to a building project, for example, it means to finish or complete. So look at these examples. This is in 1 Kings. Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was shalomed. That's what it is in Hebrew. Um, look at this one in Nehemiah. So the famous wall was shalomed on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. So it's like a construction word. It can be used in that way. But the idea of finishing something or just seeing something through to completion also has um, all sorts of connotations, like financial connotations. And you can, we can understand this as sort of making restitution. Check this one out in um, Leviticus. So if this man that we're talking about has sinned and he realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything that he has sworn falsely about, he shall shalom it in full and shall add a fifth to it and then give it to him who belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. That's in Leviticus 6. You see, it's very different from a building project. Same word, but you get the idea. So you can see at the core idea here is that shalom is about completeness or wholeness. So from there, um, we're going to go to, um, I mean, what happens now is that the biblical authors juice this word for, all, for every last drop of meaning, and they use this as a metaphor, which spreads out further. And you can really see this happening in its noun, in its noun form. So um, it can be used in reference to someone's wholeness or completeness of being, that is their welfare. So look at this example in um, 1 Samuel. Jesse sends, said to David, his son, hey, go to your brother's 
take an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them to the camp, to your brothers. Also, make sure you grab some cheese. Take that to the commander. He needs, he needs his cheese. <laughs> and um, see, in English, you hear, see if your brothers are well. It's um, just check on their shalom. Go just check up on the shalom of, their, of your brothers. See how they're doing. And then bring some token from them. <laughs> um, in a similar sense, shalom gets at that right and good state. So uh, welfare. Let's, let's spread this out a little bit. It gets at this right and good state of being tranquil, restful, calm, quiet. Um, look at this example in Isaiah. And the effect of righteousness will be shalom. The result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Now, you're reading poetry. So these authors are stacking these two lines and you're allowed to compare the first with the second. So in the first line, you have shalom. In the second line, what's it lined up with? Quietness, trust. Keep going. My people will abide in a shalom habitation. What does that mean? Secure dwellings, quiet, resting. You get the idea. But it's more than just your health or welfare or the tranquil atmosphere. Shalom gets at the relationships which comprise the human condition and create that atmosphere. The relationships which, um, well, let me say it like this. It's about the structural integrity or soundness of a relational bond or covenantal commitment between people. Here's another example in Isaiah. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. You or sorry, and my covenant of shalom shall not be removed. This is about God partnering with people. He cares about the relationship. <clears throat> so it makes a lot of sense that the whole thing becomes a political word that we're familiar with, and it, sort of this agreement, this partnership between kingdoms or nations, that there will be no war. Instead, shalom. We agree to take care of each other and to not hurt each other. And you can see I... Put an example from 1 Samuel in there if you're interested. So moving on, the big picture idea then is this sort of box of existence. <laughs> Once again, another week on clip art. Hang with me. I've, this one, I'm, most, I'm really proud of today's sermon in the clip art here. Watch, watch what happens. This is a box of existence, and it's perfectly built with structural integrity. It's complete. It's whole, it's not lacking. All is stable and tranquil and harmonious within this structure. The different parts which comprise the whole are harmoniously linked and they're mutually benefiting from one another. All is structurally sound. We call it shalom. And anytime we explore the meaning of a word within the Bible, we must also interact with the related vocabulary that shows up in tandem with the word because that vocabulary gives us a richer picture. One and so the word that we're going to talk about today is this word good, which is crucial. So look, it shows up often with the word shalom. Read this verse in the Psalms. Turn away from evil and do good. What does that look like? Will you seek shalom and you pursue it? So you kind of have to understand both. Um, look at this one in Isaiah. <laughs> this one's almost funny. Uh, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes, who publishes shalom, who brings good news of goodness. That's what it is in Hebrew. You have, might have happiness. It's goodness. Who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. They're just, they're just intimately connected. For those of you in the Bible's literature class, 
you're one step ahead of me right now, but this idea of goodness has been with the reader from the very beginning. Um, good, or in Hebrew, tov, is the dominant adjective used to describe God's initial creation design. So remember, in the beginning, clip art it up, God created the world. Turns out there is no wave clip art, and you gotta get really clever. Okay, God created the world, and built into this world were these connection points, these relational dynamics. God makes humans in his likeness, and they trust him, and the integrity of that relationship between God and humans is mysteriously mirrored in this unique relationship they have with one another. And of course, together they image that first relationship, God's ruling, by being creatively authoritative in the world taking up their commission to rule, and by gardening, building families and communities and culture, etc. And so the point here is that God saw this ordered existence he set up, and he said, it's good. Which is not to say that the creation had made any morally good choice at that point. Hadn't done anything exactly yet. It was, it's that it was intrinsically delightful to its creator and was completely and utterly poised for the flourishing of life. When something is good, that means it is set up for and ripe for the flourishing of life. It is ordered, it is right, and now life can exist and regenerate and flourish. Flourishing just being that all things are in right relationship and mutually benefiting, creative regenerative potential. So big picture, big picture. When the Bible wants to tell you something about God, in the beginning, it portrays him as a very wise judge who has ordered out a beautiful existence for life to flourish and has determined already what is good. And here it is. Humans in right, right, right relationship with him, right relationship with each other, and right relationship with the world, Tov. So you can see how in the biblical imagination there is this overlap between trusting God, God's judgment of what's good, that is, that which contributes to the flourishing of life, and then what shalom is. Shalom is the completeness and wholeness of it all, the structural integrity of the way things ought to be, the way God designed it. Yeah? It's all about the clip art. <laughs> Look how clear it is. I know. Okay, so um, Cornelius Plantinga, the guy I mentioned, whose book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which is a book we're going to be pulling a lot from, um, Enter In at Your Own Risk, but I highly recommend re entering in. He describes shalom in this way. It's universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and savior opens, at its, as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, here we go, is the way things ought to be, that box. So the details of what things ought to look like may vary a bit depending on who you are. If you're a Hebrew prophet, you gravitate towards images like the mountains will flow with wine, which is like neither here nor there for me. I don't really care. And that might not be your first image of what universal flourishing or wholeness or delight looks like. But the point is that when the Bible casts vision for shalom, often poetically, it's tapping into this intrinsic awareness present in all of us. We all possess, in one way or another, a sense that something is off, 
Something is off about our world, and we can imagine a world where things are as they ought to be. So I'm going to read a long quote. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. There's a point to it. Plantinga, is, he casts a general, but watch this, a tantalizing vision for this. And I want you to just pay attention to what happens to your senses here. He says, we all desire a world with strong marriages and secure children. Nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, complementary. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women to men until a crisis arose. And then with good humor all around, the person more naturally competent in the area of the crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction and pleasure of both. Can you imagine? Government officials would still take office because somebody has to decide which streets are cleaned on Tuesday, which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth. They would freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these and savor them and call to each other about them. And above all, God would preside in the unspeakable beauty for which human beings long and in the mystery of wholeness, holiness that draws human worship like a magnet. In turn, each human being would reflect and color the light of God's presence out of the inimitable resources of his or her own character and essence. It's just like a hot tub of vision casting. It's like, come on, who doesn't want to live there? In short, shalom. Okay, that's the other way you could say that. So he's casting vision for shalom in a way that sparks our, the modern imagination. In the same way that the Hebrew prophets were able to get the job done when they talk about mountains and wine dripping which, again, might be your thing. So two things happen, I find, simultaneously when you let yourself be swept up in this vision. The first is you can feel, at least I can, your spirit like lift up. You can, your imagination starts to spark and your soul alights with wonder as you visualize what could be. And deep down in your soul, a conviction maybe even starts to form as you float into that vision that it's actually the way things ought to be. But a second thing happens as your imagination begins to fire. As this vision of shalom lifts you up and draws you in, you can't help but look down at the mess in which you were just standing and say with sort of newfound horror, Oh, that's not the way it's supposed to be down there. That's horrible. That down there, that's disgusting. It's depressing. It's wrong. It's ugly and tragic like vandalism on the Pieta. That, church, is sin. And that's what we're talking about for a few weeks. Sin is just... It's one of those tricky words that comes with all sorts of baggage, depending on your religious or non-religious background. Sin, iniquity, transgression, these are all biblical vocabulary words aimed at addressing the messed up world we live in and then, 
and in particular how humanity is responsible for part of that. So um, to sin is classically to miss the mark, to transgress is to sort of break relational trust, and then to iniquity sort of deals with that crooked behavior. And our plan is to explore this sort of generally and to, a, to varying degrees of depth as the weeks go on. But for our purposes today, I want to offer you a much broader definition which aims to step back, look at the grand picture. While the Bible will explore at great detail and nuance <laughs> countless stories of the ways in which people find all sorts of creative ways to sin, there's always this larger story hanging in the background. God's good world is no longer good because humans are behaving in ways they ought not to behave. <laughs> Therefore, we have found Plantinga's definition very helpful as we move forward. Sin, broadly speaking, is that which disrupts, breaks, or vandalizes shalom. So recall with me, shalom, structural integrity, the wholeness, soundness of the created order, all is good, right, flourishing. But any form of behavior which damages the integrity of the structure, which vandalizes the beauty of the created order, is not the ideal. It's not what should have happened. So um, here we go. Think with me on the infamous story where the good world of God is first corrupted. You'll recall in Genesis 3, the humans are joined by another personality, the crafty little serpent. And the conversation he strikes up with Eve is aimed at questioning one key thing. Did God really say not to eat from any tree? In other words, the serpent is asking them to question the judgment of their creator. Did God really say this? Surely he's not telling you everything. And so we're invited in that moment as readers of the story to contemplate the implications of this. What happens when the core stabilizing relationship, God's relationship to humans, weakens, breaks, falls apart? What happens when humans don't trust God? The whole thing, which was previously complete, a beautifully ordered world of right, good relationships, it now suddenly crumbles. There's no longer structural integrity of the whole. You get it? The beauty of shalom has been vandalized. And so <clears throat> we address sin in the church then not, not to be judgmental. This isn't to heap unwarranted guilt or shame. And I'm, let me just say, as part of the leadership of this church, I was so sorry if your experience with pastors and preachers and churches have just been, has just been horrible just nothing but shame and guilt. That is not why we want to talk about sin. Um, we address sin because we believe it shatters and vandalizes something beautiful. It threatens the health of ourselves and our community. So perhaps the idea of spending a season of our preaching calendar talking about sin doesn't th thrill you, and certainly to a degree, totally with you. Um, but I'm also convinced that if we are trepidatious moving into conversations about sin, it's simply because, and it's okay, but it's just simply because we've forgotten the good context from which it emerges, or rather, the good context which it's vandalizing. Sin is important to talk about not because we like to talk about sin, 
but because we sense the Spirit of God elevating and sharpening our community's imagination for shalom. And we're starting to develop, in turn, a keener eye for that which doesn't belong in shalom. So God's good rule, his shalom, his way, his truth, his life, that is what we've been swept up with. And the further we're ushered into the palace, the more painfully we're becoming aware of that mud on our shoes. And it's not just about beauty or even purity. It's about health and welfare, wholeness, the flourishing of life. So as we kind of like um, got to find a place to land here, we're going to just take a few minutes to, to contemplate another illustration. That's not a bunch of broccoli. It's an aerial view of a rainforest. It's a rainforest. Um, this particular rainforest is on the island of Borneo. Um, so rainforests, for those of you that don't know, um, are Earth's oldest living ecosystems we know of, and even, and they, they, but they just cover, here's the thing, they cover only about 6% of Earth's landmass. And yet, they are home to over half of the world's living species. Contemplate, man, 6%? And they hold over half? You have to like imagine a place you've never been to before. This is insane. So it's shocking. It's shocking how diverse the complex web of life is within a single rainforest. In just a patch of four square miles, one little quadrant of a forest can contain as many as 1,500 kinds of flowering plants. Ugh, 750 species of trees, not 750 trees, 750 species of trees, 400 species of birds, and 100, 150 species of butterflies. I think in my garden I've only seen like two kinds of butterflies ever. 150 species? So scientists continue to discover more and more and more and more about the crucial nature of rainforests for the health of the planet every day. But what's been known for a while is this concept of biodiversity. Maybe you've heard of this before. Of which rainforests, man, are a great example. That's why we're talking about them right now. Biodiversity is what it sounds like. It's a high degree of diverse bios or life within plants and genetic diversity within species. And then it's a diversity of ecosystems planet-wide when we talk about the biodiversity of the planet. So in short, the more complex, the more intricate, mingled all of these diverse features are, like a dense, connected tapestry of living organisms, the more resilient and healthy the ecosystem. This is just like basic biology class. For example, in the rainforest, a spider monkey climbs a tree, eats the fruit of the tree, and then in its poop lies the seed for more trees, which is now fertilized and can grow to absorb that tree will grow, it will help absorb carbon dioxide, provide home for more diverse species, etc. Now, in a rainforest, if a spider monkey dies, there is a vast amount of species warming the bench, ready to eat the fruit and spread the tree, because there's biodiversity. Or if a certain disease comes in and ravages a specific kind of tree, then what you want is for that species of tree to have diversified itself enough genetically within the ecosystem so as the disease comes, it's able to attack it and overcome it. 
Um, the, in other, the more diverse life you have, the stronger the ecosystem is because you covered those blind spots. You create this net of support. Does that make sense? You with me? Biodiversity. Okay, great. So in our own gardens, whether on our apartment balcony or in our backyards, this is not my garden. I wish this was my garden. Holy smokes, it just makes me salivate. It's so stunning. The more diversity we incorporate, the stronger the miniature ecosystem. So you can spray your aphids on your lupins. That's fine, no judgment. Or you can introduce ladybugs, which will come in and eat the aphids and provide extra diversity within your little miniature ecosystem. And then it's a rabbit trail and you're spending too much at Shorty's nursery than you should. But it's, you create a healthy garden. You create a healthy garden where everything protects everything. So on the flip side though, it goes without saying that an ecosystem is made weak hear me, when it is robbed of biodiversity, or if really important organisms die out. These are called keystone organisms. In the ecosystem of the coral reef, for example, you guys did not know that you were gonna be watching Planet Earth this morning, but come on, it's God's creation, just like appreciate it. In the ecosystem of a coral reef, for example, the coral is the keystone organism. It's not the same as a spider monkey in the rainforest. If the coral dies, the enormous population of diverse life it supports goes into panic mode. This is called habitat fragmentation. And raw facts on the table, it's often caused by humans being poor stewards of God's creation. So I'm not gonna segue into an environmental soapbox here, though I think Christians should just be first in line to care about God's beautiful world. But here's the image I wanna leave you with. To sin, to perpetuate systems of sin, is not just to vandalize something beautiful, it's not just something you do to yourself. It's to break the structural integrity of the whole, to fragment the good design of the habitat, the place we all live. It's to poison the coral. Shalom is broken in our sin. And it's like watching the bleaching and deadening of parts of the coral reef in Australia, which has lost more than half its coral since 1995. The whole has been compromised because of human sin, by the way. So this is a picture of sin within a community or a family, and we've all experienced this. Some sins have uh, like a more immediate or more overtly sinister effect on the community than others, but all eventually act as a sort of rot to the larger ecosystem. When we don't deal with our sin, we eventually, either unknowingly or knowingly, out of a place of woundedness or shame, sin against others. And that causes hurt and pain, which can become like the spread of a disease. And when that happens to, say, a pastor or key members of a leadership team, it's been known to crumble a church. It's the coral reef. And when that happens in places of, say, political power. It's been known to start wars and to crumble communities and bring death to thousands and ruin nations. The Apostle Paul draw, draws on a different metaphor to make the exact same point, but it's kind of the same metaphor. Watch, when addressing sin within the Corinthian church, this is what he says. Don't you guys know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not... Mm, you're not your own. 
Do you know you don't belong to yourself anymore? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Here Paul uses the image of a temple, which, come on, itself is a giant symbol of the shalom of the Garden, the garden of Eden ecosystem. You, as an individual, are like a tiny temple who houses the Holy Spirit, which means your body houses more than just you. Therefore, address your sin, because as long as it's there, you won't function to your fullest little temple self. It's not gonna work. But also, as Peter and Paul both note later on, we're all stones making up the larger temple of God. The temple imagery works both ways, corporately and individually. We are God's priestly biodiversity. <laughs> he dwells in us as individual temples. But the church, the body of Christ, is this true temple where heaven and earth meet, the body of Christ. And, where, and here, he, all things are being connected and reconciled under Christ, the great, as he does this thing, this great cosmic enterprise known as his shalom over all creation again, whatever this is that we're a part of. The new heavens and the new earth. And so sin is vandalism to this. That's just what it is. It's the rot to this plan for flourishing. So here's what I think um, God has for us as we move forward. Starting today, there's an invitation for us as a community and also for us as individuals to reflect once more upon sin. And sin is only worth talking about if we can understand it as vandalism to something beautiful, the thing really worth our focus and attention. So there's an invitation for us this morning to let down our guard. Um, gosh, and I just, uh, I know this is sensitive. Like I'm not just, I don't say this lightly, but there is. There is an invitation to let down our guard, to be willing to talk about sin and pray through it with each other because we believe afresh that maybe God wants to deal with it so that we can step into shalom. And that's very different from like, we just think we're gonna get in trouble or something. And so I think God is doing two things simultaneously in our midst. He's both widening our imaginations for the true and the good and the beautiful. And at the same time, he's allowing all that vandalizes that shalom to leave an increasingly bitter taste in our mouths. We've brushed our teeth in his presence and now suddenly that cherry popsicle, which isn't good for us anyways, really tastes bad. So um, don't go away over the next several weeks. Don't run. <laughs> Walk with us. Be brave. And shalom over you as you courageously begin to examine your lives once more, knowing that God means for thriving rainforests, literally and metaphorically. And masterful, he means for masterful works of art in our own lives. He means for the flourishing of life. I believe that. And sometimes there are weeks when it's hard to believe that. Um, but that's when you walk by faith with each other <laughs> and you believe, no, he means for shalom. His heart is shalom, and he wants us to see the way it's been vandalized and believe that that is not the way it's supposed to be. 
and to pray once more, bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, where it is as it ought to be.